Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message and declares himself God and then subsequently a statue of him is placed into the Holy of Holies. He said, now this is the beginning of the signs of the end of the age. When the tribulation period gets rolling, that is the sign that the end of the age is near upon us. The second question that the disciples asked was, what is the sign that the destruction of Jerusalem would take place? Remember, Yeshua said, not one of these stones would be left standing upon another. And so he said, they asked him, what is the sign that these things will take place? And Yeshua said to his disciples, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is nigh. He said, flee to the mountains. And then he tells us, that this will go on, this treading down of Jerusalem and the Jewish people by the nations of the world will continue until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Times of the Gentiles began with the Babylonian exile of the southern kingdom of Judah. It continues until the kingdom of Messiah is established. We are still in the times of the Gentiles. And so Yeshua is telling the disciples... When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is nigh. They saw that in 70 AD, and they were enabled to flee. We're told that they did flee to the mountains, that is the Jewish believers who listened to Yeshua. The rest of Israel that remained in the city, the city was destroyed 70 AD. Jerusalem was then dispersed by 73 with the destruction at Masada. And there was then a worldwide dispersion of the Jewish people. But Yeshua answered the question saying, the sign of the fall of Jerusalem will be when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. But then they asked him, what is the sign of your coming? The sign of the end of the age are the events of the tribulation period. The sign of the fall of Jerusalem and the temple is the surrounding of the city by the armies. In this case, it was the Roman armies. And then they asked, what is the sign of your coming? And Yeshua told us that the sign of his coming is the presence of the Shekinah glory. That all will see. That it will be preceded by a celestial nightmare in which the sun, moon, the stars will no longer be giving its light as such. There will be a shroud of darkness. And in the midst of that darkness, the Shekinah glory will reappear. And when the Shekinah glory appears... Know that Messiah is on his way. He tells us that where the vultures are gathered to the corpses, that's where he will be found. What he's talking about is where the nations are attacking Israel, 
That's where Messiah will be found. He said, don't go if you hear that someone says they saw him in the desert or in the mountains or in one of these homes. No, Yeshua will come to his people to defend them, to protect them, to deliver them. So where are we supposed to look for Yeshua? We look for him wherever Israel is. And that's why Yeshua had said in Matthew chapter 23 that we would not see him any longer until he would say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Israel will cry out for the Lord's coming when they are in great duress caused by the Antichrist at the end of time. And when the, the Israel calls out for Messiah's coming, he will come to them. Not just to the world, he will come to them to deliver them. And that's why he said, where the vultures are gathered, that's where you want to go. Where the nations are gathered to destroy Israel, that's where I am returning to. I'm returning to my people to deliver them and to protect them. Now, once that he tells us this, now answers those three questions, Yeshua then introduces further information that the disciples did not ask anything about. If you look at Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 31, he then tells them, after he told them of the sign of his coming. Oh, I'm looking at the wrong page. In, in cha wrong chapter. In chapter 24, he goes on to say, in verse, beginning, we can look back to verse 29. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, as I mentioned. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power. There it is, great glory, the Shekinah. Verse 31, and now he starts telling us something that the disciples didn't ask him about. He says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So Yeshua now gives us some additional information. He doesn't give us a lot of information on this. It's information on the regathering of the Jewish people. Now, the reason why he doesn't give us a lot of information on this regathering is because the prophets have said a great deal about it already. They did not say a great deal about the sign of the end of the age, although they do talk about it. They do not give us a great deal about the sign of Messiah's coming. They just speak of him as having come, and when he comes, he will reign. But they did say a lot about what he will do when he comes. And the thing that Yeshua draws our attention to, it's very interesting. He doesn't say he will come and he will reign, though he will. He doesn't come and say he will put down the nations, though he will. He, sta he states he will come and he's going to regather his people. He comes because the Jewish people in Israel will be crying out for him. As we will see in later passages, the prophet Zechariah tells us that at the end of time, the Antichrist and his forces will attack Jerusalem and will overcome it. And there will be some who will escape from Jerusalem. Those that escape from Jerusalem will be those that will call upon Messiah to come. And he will come to them. But there are still Jewish people that are in other places of the world. They're not all located in Israel, although today the majority of the world Jewish population is in Israel for the first time. In the last 10 years or less, there have been more Jews in Israel than there are in the United States. So it's the largest Jewish community in the world is in Israel. But at the end of time, not every single Jewish person is going to be in Israel. 
Because as Messiah tells us, he's going to send his angels out to the four corners of the earth and under the four winds of heaven to regather his elect. Now, the word elect, don't let that, don't allow that to sort of trip you up. Because when we read the word elect, we think about chosen individuals who know Messiah. Because Paul uses that expression over and over again, speaking of the believers as the elect called of God. But the word elect simply means chosen. So when Yeshua says here, he will gather his chosen ones from the four winds of the earth, he's talking about the chosen people, the Jewish people. That's who he is regathering at the time of his coming. And this is something that the prophets speak to in great detail. I want to share some of this with you. But first of all, notice what Yeshua says. He tells us he will send his angels out after he returns at his second coming. See, there are some people that think that all the Jewish people need to return to Israel today in order to fulfill the prophecy. Not so. Yeshua just told us. Then we will see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, and then he will send out his angels to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. The regathering of the Jewish people takes place after Messiah comes, not before. Now, I'm not arguing if you're Jewish, you shouldn't go to Israel. I even wonder, what am I doing here in the diaspora? You know, we should be in our homeland. We have our land back. And so this is where we should be headed. But we're still here. And God has called us to different places in the world to serve, to live, and with family, and all kinds of reasons are given. But the day will come when no matter what reason it is, we happen to be in whatever place in the world we are in, the angel is going to come and say, it's time to go. You know, time to pick up and and go. And maybe they won't even give us that option. They're just going to say, hi, I'm here under orders to get you to Israel. So we're going now. But however it's going to take place, the angels are going to gather the Jewish people from wherever they are scattered and to bring them into the land of Israel where the Lord is going to establish his kingdom from and from his kingdom reign over the earth. So we're good? So his gathering of the Jewish people takes place after his coming. Further, he tells us his angels are going to be doing this. So the angels are going to be engaged, involved in regathering his people. How will they be involved? I don't know. But angels are oftentimes seen behind the scenes. We don't oftentimes see them at work, but they are at work doing the bidding of the Lord, though we may not be able to see them at work doing their job. Sometimes we do see them. You see, like the angel appears to Mary, and she speaks to the angel. Angels appeared to Abraham. Angels appeared to Jacob. Angels appeared to various righteous individuals. Angels appeared to Paul while he's in prison. So sometimes they do manifest themselves, but that's extremely rare, extremely rare. The majority of times that angels are engaged in the work that God has called them to do, we do not see it. One great example is when an angel appears to Daniel. After Daniel had prayed, he's given the vision of the 70 weeks. And he doesn't understand what this means. And he's praying for understanding. And it takes a number of months or a number of weeks, I don't know exactly the time frame, that before an angel appears to Daniel to tell them or to provide for him the answer to his prayer to understand the vision that he saw. And the angel says, look, I'm sorry, I got here a little late. 
but I was detained by a fallen angel, by a demon with whom he had to do battle before he could escape and get to Daniel. But we don't see any of that. We don't see any of the firefight that is going on. We read in the book of Jude that Michael the archangel disputed with Satan over the body of Messiah, but we don't see it. It's happening in another dimensional sphere of our universe that we are not privy to see at this particular stage in our lives, at least not normally. There may be exceptions. We see that in the scripture. But for the most part, we know that angels have a role to play in the work of God. And one of those roles will be to regather his people. And how will they do it? We don't know. Will they arrange circumstances so that they can get back to the land, that kind of a thing? However it occurs, angels are given the responsibility to see that his people are regathered to the land when Messiah appears. Further, Yeshua said, it will be accompanied by the sounding of the shofar. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. Now, this is not the trumpet call of 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, at the last trump. And it can't be the trumpet of the book of Revelation. And here's an interesting thing. Sometimes those individuals that believe we're going to go through the tribulation and that we will be raptured at the end of the tribulation. And what they oftentimes, post-tribulationists, will go to is in 1 Corinthians, it says that at the last trump, the, uh, that we will be changed and this mortal will put on immortality. And they connect the last trump of 1 Corinthians with the last trump in the book of Revelation and say that's where it would happen. But here's the reason why that can't be the case. Paul wrote the book of Corinthians in 51. John wrote the book of Revelation in 95. So when Paul says the last trump, he understands he, they know what he's talking about. Because he said it won't occur until the last trump. But if the book of Revelation wasn't yet written, they wouldn't know anything about the seven trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation. That won't be written for another 40 years. So they cannot be related to one another because Paul expected the Corinthians to understand what he meant by the last trump. So it is not the last trump in the book of Revelation. What is the last trump? Well, he gives us an indication in the very chapter that he spoke of because he told us that Messiah rose on the Feast of First Fruits. And the Feast of First Fruits is Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, the tr- Feast of the Shofarim or shofarot. And when he says at the last trumpet, or the last shofar blowing, he's referring to Tekiah Gedola, the last trumpet blast in the series of blasts that are blasted on Rosh Hashanah. And just as Rosh Hashanah, we blow the Tekiah Gedola to like uh, initiate the feast of Rosh Hashanah, or Yom Teruah, the day of the trumpet blast. Similarly, what Yeshua is saying here is that at the time when he comes, there's going to be a shofar blast. These are not the same ones, however. And Revelation 7 is not the same one as 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians is related to the Feast of Trumpets. So these are distinct moments when these trumpets will be blown. I believe that in 1 Corinthians, the trumpet blown there is in accordance with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul talks about, at the last trump, we shall be changed, and we will meet the Lord in the air. 
And the dead in Messiah will ride first. And then we who are alive at the time this event takes place will be gathered to the Lord. That's the rapture. We haven't talked about that yet. We're getting there. But the rapture will occur with the sounding of the shofar, which is the shofar Paul is talking about, 1 Corinthians 15. The shofar Messiah is talking about is a distinct shofar blast that will occur after he returns and he sends out the angels. The shofar blast in Revelation is a distinct one. It's a series of seven which are blown to initiate the outpouring of judgment. All three of these trumpets are independent of each other. This is a trumpet at the return of Messiah. Revelation is a trumpet during the tribulation period. 1 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians 2 is the trumpet at the rapture. So what has Yeshua told us in Matthew 24? The regathering of Israel will take place after Messiah returns. Messiah's angels will be tasked with the responsibility of regathering his people. And when they do so, it will be accompanied by the blowing of the shofar. And the regathering of the Jewish people will be worldwide. Because he tells us from the four corners of the earth. Now, what I wanted to show you is this. What Yeshua is making reference to is based on what the prophets have already said. Now, Messiah was the best Bible student and teacher there ever was. Because when you read Isaiah chapter, I think it's 55, or maybe it's 50, I think it's 55, we're told that the Messiah was woken every morning by God the Father and was taught the truths of the Scripture. And so he learned things with respect to his humanity. You remember, Messiah is unique. He has two natures. He's the God-man. As God, he knows everything. But with respect to his humanity, there are things he doesn't know. Now, that may sound kind of strange to us to think about, but you need to remember, Yeshua is unique. If he wasn't the God-man, he couldn't die, right? Because God cannot be killed. So if he's just God, he can't die. If he's just man, if he just has a human nature, he can die, but he can't now bear our sin. Why can't he bear our sin? Because as a man only, he cannot bear the weight of an eternal weight of sinfulness, of all people everywhere. He himself has to be perfect, and he has to be infinite in nature in order to take upon himself the sin of the world. So in order to provide atonement, he must be both God and man. Now, the moment he's both God and man, he is uniquely crafted so that some things he can do or respond to out of his humanity and some things he can respond to out of his deity. So on one occasion, he can get tired. But with respect to his divinity or his deity, he never gets tired. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. With respect to his deity and divinity, he can know all things. That's why he says, I know all men's hearts. But with respect to his humanity, he could say, no man knows the day or the hour, not the angels in heaven, not even the sun. He knows with respect to his deity. He does not know with respect to his humanity. So Yeshua is unique. He can respond to things out of his deity, in which case he knows everything. He doesn't need, uh, he doesn't need anything. So with respect to his divine nature, he never gets hungry, never gets tired, would never need, never die. He's eternal. But with respect to his humanity that he draw, takes on to be joined to his 
divinity, there can be limitations. And so with respect to his limitations, he can learn. With respect to his deity, he knows all things. So it's a question of how he responds to things. So once he becomes incarnate, he's unique. Uniquely crafted as the God-man. Prior to his incarnation, he's the Word that was with God and was God. After the Word, he is the God-man. He is both God and man. He has a divine nature and a human nature. So he can learn, and he can also know all men's hearts at the same time. So it's interesting that Yeshua in Matthew chapter 24 doesn't tell us everything, but he's drawing on things he knows as Scripture has articulated them. In one sense, he knows it all from his deity because he inspired it to be written. On the other hand, he can veil some of his knowledge with respect to his humanity and learn it. But we need to always learn it. <laughs> you know, we don't know it. So here are some interesting passages that speak that the prophets speak to the issue of the regathering of Israel. So check this out. In Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah writes, In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant. It's very interesting. Isaiah is the one that particularly develops this theme of the faithful remnant. And he uses this word and phrase over and over again. That is those that remain. The word remnant always has within it a sense that there's a majority that do not know the Lord, but a majority that are lost, not just spiritually, but physically as well. Whereas there's always a remnant among Israel that are faithful to the things of God and that trust him and that find salvation through him. So in that day, it's always a reference to the future, always to a time of judgment or a time of the messianic era. The context has to help us with this. And this is a time when the Lord's going to reach out his hand a second time. The first time was when he regathered his people from perhaps from Babylon. They were captive for 70 years, maybe when they returned from Babylon. Maybe the second time is something we're seeing emerge in our world as we're seeing more and more Jewish people return to the land of Israel. But there'll be a further regathering of God's people, according to Isaiah, the remnant that is left. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. The idea is he raises this banner that would lead nations to come to the God of Israel, to come to the people of Israel so that they would know him. So a banner is raised. And he will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That's exactly what Yeshua said. He just told us it would happen after he comes. And he told us his angels would do this work. But he told us that he would send his angels out to the four quarters of the earth and regather his people. In Isaiah 43, it says, do not be afraid. He's saying this to Israel, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east. I will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now, if we looked at the whole context, can't fit it all here. But he's regathering the people from the north, south, east, and west. That's another way of saying the four corners of the earth or under the four winds of heaven. And he regathers his people, Israel, to the land of Israel. If they're scattered, where are they gathered to? They're gathered to the place from which they were scattered. 
Where were they scattered from? Israel. Where would they be gathered to? Israel. And so uh, the prophets go on. Jeremiah. This is one of my favorite past sections uh, of prophecies about Messiah. Chapter 23. For the only time in all of Scripture, the only other person that bears the full sacred name of God is Messiah. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Where he's called a king. And as a king, what would he be called? Adonai, uh, the Lord, our righteousness, Tzidkenu. Adonai, Tzidkenu. I say Adonai, but the word in the Hebrew is the sacred name of God in its fullest form. And so it's there that Messiah bears the sacred name of God. The only place in all of Scripture where someone other than God himself bears that name. Which says something unique about him. And then Jeremiah goes on to say, So then, when Messiah comes, the one who is the Lord, our righteousness, and he reigns as king, and he deals wisely as a king, says, Then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, As surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. That is the watershed moment of Israel's history. When Israel comes out of Egypt and is wielded into a nation, and is given the law which separates Israel from all other nations. That's the watershed moment of Israel's history until the return of Messiah. Because now they will no longer say, oh, the Lord who led us out of Egypt. That's why we celebrate Passover every year. Because being brought out of Egypt was the main event that, or a moment that wielded Israel into the nation that God had set her apart to be. But the day is coming when they're no longer going to say, the Lord, oh, that's the Lord who brought us out of Egypt. That's the Lord who brought all the plagues on our enemies. That's the Lord who gave us the law at Sinai. That's the Lord who led us through the wilderness and brought us into the promised land. That, That was a great moment of demonstration of God's love for his people as he redeems them, as he saves them, and as he enters into a covenant relationship. The Mosaic law is, a, is really a marriage covenant. It's a marriage bond. It's a ketubah, as we say in Hebrew or in the Jewish tradition. God now, for the first time, enters into a formal marriage relationship with the nation of Israel. And Israel is referred to as the wife of the Lord. And he is seen as their husband. We can't go into all of that. But the day is coming when they will no longer draw attention to the exodus with all of those things I just shared that have to do with the unique relationship, God, loving relationship God has with Israel. But what will they say? They will say, surely the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. Then they will live in their own land. So this is a great passage in which Jeremiah is saying all the Jews from all over the world will be regathered back into their homeland, their own land that the Lord has given them. I didn't put this up on the, on the uh, overhead because this passage is a bit long, but it is a powerful passage, and I just want to read it for you. In Jeremiah chapter 31, Beginning at verse 7. Just listen to these words. If you want to follow along, you can. But listen to these words. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. Raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. 
Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here, the land of Israel. With weeping they shall come. With pleas for mercy I will lead them back. Here they are experiencing redemption. They're, They're weeping over their sin and they're pleading for the mercy of God to forgive them. This is Isaiah 53. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O Gentiles, O nations. Declare it. In the coastlands far away. And this is what the nations are to say. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him. And will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. Has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Over the grain, look at the blessings he's going to pour out upon them. The wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall languish no more. They sh- then shall the young women rejoice and dance. And the young men and the old men shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Is that not a great, great passage? And it's a passage about what Israel is to look forward to when the Messiah returns, sends out his angels, and gathers his elect from the four corners of the earth. It's not just a gathering. It's an outpouring of blessing. It's an outpouring of mercy. They will experience the redemptive hand of God. They will experience the regathered hand of God. And they'll come into the land with dancing and shouting. And I love that phrase. You know, they're not going to stumble. It's going to be a straight path. And he says there's going to be a waterway that will lead them. They're never going to get thirsty along the way. God will always provide for them. They're coming out of the desert. They don't have to worry about it. God is going to provide for them as they come. And we know how he'll provide for them. The angels. The angels are going to provide for his people as they are brought into the land. In Ezekiel, in chapter 11, it says, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations, bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. Listen, if there is ever a question about whose land the land of Israel belongs to with respect to what does the Bible say? I don't think you can get any clearer than that. I will give you back the land of Israel. So there's no escaping what the Bible has to say. We can reject it. You're free to do that. But you're not free to somehow make the land of Israel Portugal. You're not free to make the land of Israel the United States. You're not free to make the land of Israel the church of believers. The land of Israel is the land of Israel. It is not a people as such, not the land of Israel, the people of Israel are, but the land of Israel is the land in the Middle East bordered by the Mediterranean, bordered by the Jordan, bordered by the Euphrates, bordered by the Wadi El Arish. That's the land of Israel that the Jewish people will inherit when Messiah returns. Ezekiel 20 goes on. 
He says, on my holy mountain, the high mountain of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. You know, Ezekiel is making this as crystal clear as he can make it. It's not just the Lord, it's the sovereign Lord. He's in control. It's his land, ultimately, to give to whoever he wants. It's his people, whoever they are, to be chosen. And he's chosen the people of Israel for himself. And he says, there in the land, the entire house of Israel will serve me. I will accept you as a fragrant incense when I bring you out from the nations, gather you from the countries where you have been scattered. When I bring you into, here it is again, the land of Israel. And if there's any mistake about what land it is, it's the land that he swore with with uplifted hand, that's out of Genesis, to give to your fathers. And who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He promised them the land of Israel, which fathers never received this promise. Abraham never received the land. In fact, when he died, he only owned one small parcel, a cave in which he had buried his wife, Sarah. But other than that, he had no ownership over the land that God told him to walk its breadth, its width, its depth, its height, because all the land that he walks on, the Lord's given to him. But he didn't get a chance to walk it all, literally. And he didn't have the opportunity to possess it all. So what does this mean? It means he has to be resurrected and put back into the land in order for him to receive the land that the Lord said, I would give you. Because our Lord is a truthful God. If he says he's going to give you the land, you have to receive the land. And Abraham never received it. Neither did Isaac, neither did Jacob. In fact, Jacob spent a good deal of his life outside of the land before he returned. And so what Ezekiel is telling us, when he says the Lord swore with uplifted hand, these men have to be resurrected for the kingdom to inherit the promises they were given. And not only this, but Yeshua then concludes, this is where I want to end. Yeshua concludes with this exhortation. He says, when these things begin to take place, Stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. This is really a, such a fascinating section. I'd almost like to take a whole, whole time to do this. But let me see if I can go through this quickly. There are a couple of questions we need to ask. What are the these things that Yeshua is referring to? There's two possibilities. And what is the redemption that he's talking about? There's two possibilities. So let me show you. When he talks about these things, when these things begin to take place, does he mean the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? Because if you look at Luke 21, you'll see that's what begins this whole section, where he tells them, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation draws nigh. So is he saying that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Know that its desolation draws nigh and lift up your head because your redemption is coming soon. Or when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. And then he says, lift up your heads because your redemption draws, draws near. It's a very real possibility. I'm going to share with you what I think that might mean. Or does he refer to the celestial changes? Where in darkness, if you look at Luke 21, verse 25, that's what he talks about there, just before he speaks about the coming of the Shekinah glory. And then he says, 
lift up your heads when you begin to see these things. Know that it's desolation. Uh, Know that your redemption draws nigh. Am I confusing you? I don't want to confuse. And I know I've interchanged some things there. The these things can possibly refer back to verse 20 of Luke 21, the destruction of the temple, which case that's 70 AD. Or it can refer to the, the stars no longer giving its sight, the period of the tribulation that he makes reference to in verse 25. And then he says, lift up your eyes because your redemption draws nigh. Both are possibilities, and they have their consequences. When he says begin, when these things begin to take place, now I want you to notice what Yeshua did not say. He did not say when all these things have come to pass, look up. Now, you see, if the, if the rapture was to take place tr- post-tribulationally, that's what he would have to say. Because the rapture after the tribulation comes after all those signs are completed. He couldn't say when these things begin. He would be saying when these things end, look up, because that's when Messiah is coming. But if he's referring to the rapture, if his statement now is to the disciples, hey, look, when the destruction of Jerusalem takes place, Be ready, because I can come at any moment for you. The rapture. If that's what he's talking about, and that's the way I tend to take it, but I'll give you another alternative. If he's talking about that, now think about this. We would go back to the destruction of Jerusalem. 70 AD. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem is critical to the whole end times events. Well, Yeshua inserted it, did he not, when they asked him about end times. It's critical for the end times. Why? Because the destruction of Jerusalem was a judgment, now listen, was a judgment on the nation of Israel for their failure to acknowledge Yeshua as Messiah. So the most important passage in the Gospels is Matthew chapter 12. Because it's there that the Jewish people, through their leaders, reject Yeshua as Messiah. And because they reject him there, their leaders, there's always individual Jewish people that accept him. But because in Matthew chapter 12, the leaders of the Jewish people lead the nation into a period of rejecting Messiah, Messiah says a judgment now is going to fall on Israel. Which judgment is fulfilled in 70 AD? That being the case, Yeshua could be saying, once the destruction of Jerusalem takes place, I can return at any moment for the believers. That means the rapture can take place at any moment once AD 70 was fulfilled. Because he said, Destruction is going to come to Israel for their rejection of him. Matthew 12. We can look at it another time. And that is the final sign and judgment against Israel. After that, there are no more signs, no more indicators of Messiah's coming, except for the end of time with regard to prophecy, as we just looked in Matthew chapter 24. So if he means when the destruction of Jerusalem begins to take place, know that the final judgment on Israel will, be, will happen, and then believers, whoever they are, could expect Messiah to come for them at any moment. And that's why he says, 
Your redemption draws near. So lift up your head. Always be ready for him to come. In theological terminology, this is called the imminency of Messiah's return. Imminency means not he comes immediately, but it means he can come at any moment. And he can come at any moment once the judgment he had prescribed for Israel because of their rejection of him as a nation. Once that takes place, all believers everywhere should lift up their heads because Messiah can come for us at any moment. That's what I understand the passage to be. So when these things, the destruction of Jerusalem takes place, when they begin to take place, lift up your head because I can come to bring you unto myself. Now, if it refers to the celestial signs in verse 25, if those are the things, then it's the period of the tribulation because that happens at the end of the tribulation prior to Messiah's coming. Luke 21 tells us that. If that's what he's referring to, then he's saying when you begin to see the end time events of the final period of the tribulation period, lift up your heads because I'm coming to return to establish my kingdom. In that case, the word redemption, if you take the first in verse 20, the destruction of Jerusalem, the word redemption is being used for the rapture. If you take the celestial signs of verse 25, redemption means the messianic age. Both are possible. But because of other passages, I believe Yeshua is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. Because that's such a major moment in Israel's history that is linked directly with the statements about his coming again. And so as a final, uh, final word here, redemption can mean one of the two. As a final word, and, you know, sort of reflect on this, just like it says in Matthew 25, let the reader understand. You can't understand this stuff if we just look at it once a week. You know, you have to sort of mull it over, investigate it, reread it, reflect on it, all of that. Let the reader understand. If there is anything these passages are talking about, and you heard my specific understanding with regard to what Yeshua is telling us, he's telling us, He's coming again. <laughs> you know, we put our, now we put the details aside. He's coming again. I believe we should be lifting our heads because he can bring us unto himself at any moment. All signs have been fulfilled. He's coming again. He's coming pre-tribulationally. But if you happen to like the other passage, the other way of looking at it better, that's okay. You know the Lord is coming to establish his kingdom. We better be ready. <laughs> you know, either way, we better be ready. And that's why we study God's word this way. That's why we worship him. Because how does one get ready? There are two things we're to do. Number one, we are to be watchful, Yeshua says. What does that mean? It means be anticipating. Live your life in the hope and expectation Messiah can come at any moment. And therefore, we want to live a life that is worthy of that wonderful promise. He's coming for you, and he's coming for me. We're going to get a new name, and we're going to be received into a new kingdom, into a new heaven, and then into a new messianic age and messianic kingdom. So we want to be watchful. So one way is we want to be living in anticipation. And the second thing we want to be doing, we want to be serving. 
in wherever we are at. doesn't mean just here at Beth Ariel. Wherever we are at, we ought to do what we do in service to the Lord because one day we will stand before him and we will be rewarded. Nothing wrong with doing things for the reward God has promised us. And he's promised us wood, hay, and stubble if our service lacks the dependency upon the Spirit and if it lacks the quality of God's presence in whatever it is we do. That's why he speaks of gold, silver, precious stones. We're not going to carry around a bunch of gold. I, don't, I hope none of you thought that. That we're going to have bags of gold and silver and precious jewels, you know, like in our, in our robes or somewhere. Hey, look, ah, you know, it's not going to be like that. You see these guys on television, investing gold and silver. And all. No, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with that which has quality. Gold, silver, precious stones is only more valuable because of its qualitative substance in comparison with wood, hay, and stubble. So what we want the Lord to reward us with is with a qualitative eternal service. You know, we want him to, well, give us opportunity to serve him more in greater and greater places. That's why there's a Michael who is an archangel and there are other angels. There are different authorities. There are different levels of responsibility. There are different levels of service. And so let your service here be qualitative in nature. Be one that cares about the poor. That's quality stuff. Be one that's ca- that you care about your family and those that are in need. That's the quality kind of stuff. Seek to live a life of godliness. That's the quality kind of stuff. It's not about doing more, working harder, having bigger. It's about doing what God considers most important. And what does he tell us? All the law and the prophets can be summed up in two phrases. Love the Lord, love your neighbor. And the more we do those two things, the greater our reward will be. And the more we do those two things, the more sincere, I don't know if that's the right word, but the more sincere our waiting and watching will be. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.